0: All right, on this podcast episode of T Rex Talk, I want to talk about resiliency, I want to talk about CNC machine software, and right to repair. Now, we've talked about right to repair a little bit in past episodes, um, but I really want to specifically talk about the company Tormach. Tormach is a company that makes CNC routers and CNC milling machines, and they made an announcement a couple of weeks ago saying that they were a right to repair company. Now, right to repair means a lot of different things to different people. And essentially what it really boils down to, in my opinion, is actually more of an ownership issue uh, than directly a repair issue. So if you can't actually repair or maintain or adjust or use the product on your own terms, do you actually own it? And generally speaking, this conversation revolves around Consumer electronics and to a lesser extent, software. Because you don't expect to be able to get into your software and actually change the source code and manipulate that software and alter it and make code level bug fixing repairs to the software, you wouldn't think of uh, software as being related to this right to repair issue, but it is directly related to this ownership issue. More and more pieces of software that exist today uh, they don't exist as products anymore, they exist as services that you subscribe to. So you subscribe to Adobe. Photoshop, you don't own Adobe Photoshop. You subscribe to Autodesk Fusion 360, you don't actually own it. You use it at Autodesk's discretion as long as they allow you to and you continue to pay for it. And there are certain physical tools that fall into this category as well. They exist as a a sort of a lease option. Uh, You're essentially subscribing to the service of this. Then there's other things like um, printers where technically you own the printer, but you are unable to use it without buying the ink from the specific supplier that uh, makes the ink for that specific printer. But what Tormach is trying to do is the exact opposite of that. They want to make sure that the machine is designed in such a way that the owner can easily replace a lot of the uh, most common components. So a lot of the parts of the machine are standard off-the-shelf parts, and they give you the part number so that you can go and buy replacements from people other than Tormach. And they include all the machine manuals and all the technical documents so that you know how your machine works, because it is yours and you are allowed to change it and repair it. And maintain it yourself. You're not supposed to make fixes to your iPhone. And at the high end of a lot of production equipment, you are not allowed to make changes or fixes to your production equipment. You have uh, part of your license agreement or part of your service agreement or warranty agreement is that you must have licensed service guys come out and work on stuff. And there are times when that's a very attractive proposition. We recently bought uh, a Haas machine that we're using at T-Rex Arms, and diving into the bowels of that machine to fix parts of it that break doesn't sound fun to me. It also doesn't sound like we would improve the situation when we tried to do that. And yet being able to maintain our own machines is something that is very important to us. Massive catastrophic failures are not things that we can uh, necessarily repair on our own, But being able to lubricate the machines, being able to change the air filters, being able to change the grease cartridges, being able to buy new grease cartridges off the shelf and not having to get them through a licensed dealer at 10x the price of your standard generic parts. These things are fairly important to us as a shop, both practically, but also kind of ideologically for several reasons. First of all, we like the idea that a person purchases a product and then they own that product. That becomes their private property for them to do with as they wish. And that's one of the reasons that when we revamped the sidecar, we made it open source and we built it around common off-the-shelf parts like the pins or the end mills that you use to make different bits and pieces for the sidecar. But we would also like the equipment that we have in the shop to be more user-repairable and user-maintainable for another reason, and that is that we're trying to be resilient as a company. Now I'm going to be honest. We didn't actually think very deeply about this when we first dove into uh, automation. When we first started making things, we started out with very cheap equipment that we bought off the shelf. It was really simple stuff: drill presses, band saws, microwave ovens, things that are really easy to get a new one of, regardless of whether or not Harbor Freight goes out of business. And then when it's time to get into automation, we started out at the very low end for basically. Entirely financial reasons. Um, I knew nothing about CNC routers or mills. I knew nothing about that field. But as I did my research, ShopBot made a machine that was relatively affordable and used machines held their value well but were still even more affordable and was a machine that was simple enough that I figured that I would be able to learn it by tinkering. And it was open to a lot of experimentation and a lot of modification by tinkerers. But at the same time, it was a robust machine that could be used for production work. And that's what drove us to buy a used ShopBot, and uh, I used for my CAD software LightWave, not necessarily out of a specifically deliberate decision, but because it was a piece of software that I already owned, and it was a piece of software that I was comfortable using. So for years, that was our automation package. CAD inside of LightWave, which is not necessarily a CAD program, and then CAM inside of Aspire, even though it's not necessarily a fully robust cam program, and production work being done on shopbots, which they're very low-end machines, but they were certainly capable of what it was that we were doing. Now, as T-Rex has grown, we have added to our equipment uh, shelf a Haas machine, a CNC mill, a vertical machining mill that is very powerful, very accurate, very robust, and yet at the same time, in some ways, it is a little bit less flexible than a ShopBot. The ShopBot is designed to be opened up by the user and really tinkered with. It comes as a kit that you assemble yourself. There's a whole bunch of input and output pins on the control board that you are expected to wire stuff up to. So some of our new uh, automation hardware that we built inside of the Haas machine is running on the ShopBots because the ShopBots have uh, these really exposed circuit boards and it's a cinch to put relays on those and control those through the software um, the ShopBot runs on, which is only Visual Basic. But it's really easy to customize and to tinker and to add capabilities to those things. And ShopBot doesn't complain that we have done that because... They left those exposed input-output pins there on purpose for this this very idea that the user would hack together something new, uh, something that fits their use case and their needs very specifically. And like Tormach, ShopBot makes a lot of its machines out of bits and pieces that you can buy from other places, and they leave all the labels on, so you know exactly where they're getting their spindles, exactly where they're getting their stepper motors. If you have a copy of the McMaster car catalog, it's very easy to figure out where they're getting their THK and their aluminum extrusions and T-nuts and slots and stuff like that. Very simple and straightforward for you to almost reverse engineer the ShopBot itself, And that makes it really easy to repair and to maintain because it is your tool. You own it, and once you've actually built a shop bot from the kit, it is within your capability to replace parts and maintain and repair the device if necessary using things that are really pretty easy to find. And I really like that. As much as I love the Haas machine for its speed and its power and its capability, it is on many levels a far far superior device to a shopbot, and the price tag reflects that. But with all of the extra capabilities come extra complexities that make it more difficult for us to maintain ourselves. Uh, not, not to put too fine a point on it, still a pretty low-end device. There are far more complicated and far more expensive and far more difficult to maintain CNC machines and routers and lathes out there. And part of me really wants to go to the extremes of capability and precision. Part of me wants to really be on that cutting edge of technology and to work with brand new companies that are working with brand new technologies and rolling out brand new machines. And yet, there's another part of me that really wants to build something that is resilient, something that is robust. And more and more, particularly since last year, as we've dealt with issues with supply chain and issues with various other things, the need for a robust and a resilient production pipeline has kind of made me look back at some of our decisions that we've made to stick with things that are easier to build ourselves and easier to repair ourselves. And I really feel like those were solid decisions. And the Haas machine, as wonderful as it is, is a little bit more. More difficult for us to maintain, and one of my uh, one of my priorities for this year is to get to know that system better, so that maintaining that machine on our own is a little more inside of our comfort zone. I'll get into some reasons why, but I actually have, I think, a pretty fun example of uh, sort of where where my mindset is going. There is a book that came out about twenty years ago. It, the title is 1632. It was written by Eric Flint. It is an alternate history slash sci-fi novel, and It's kind of dumb because the whole premise of the book is that there's this little West Virginia town in the year 2000, which suddenly finds itself transported to the year 1632 and uh, somewhere in the middle of Germany during the Thirty Years' War. So you have this this town and all the people inside it, and they have with them their 20th century technology. They have tools, they have vehicles, they have weapons, and around them are 17th century peasants and uh, warlords. So they have a significant advantage in some areas, but they have very limited ammunition, they have very limited fuel, they have very limited spare parts for all of their fancy technology. Essentially, what they end up doing is using the technological advantages that they have with their 20th century technology to gear down, to build 19th century technology, stuff that they can actually sustain. Their cutting-edge stuff is not something that they can maintain but 19th century technology still gives them a significant advantage over all the people who are around them so for example they have a modern steam turbine coal power plant which they're able to run for a finite amount of time but using that power they get their machine shops to build out enough pieces to build a more old fashioned steam boiler plant something that they could actually make spare parts for and actually maintain indefinitely they're building up their industrial capacity to make not modern fire rifles, like the ones that they have a little bit of ammunition for, but rifles that are a 19th century uh, style and far superior to anything that any of their enemies have. Also some medical, some agricultural stuff. And I also like that their overall philosophy is not to just camp out in this little part of the German forest that they're in. Uh, They actually want to go out and help and take advantage of opportunities to build community and to build civilization and uh, essentially start the American Revolution 150 years early. It's an interesting concept. It's kind of goofy, but on the other hand, it really makes you think about resiliency. And I know that there's plenty of alternate history books out there where guys show up at historical battles with modern equipment, and it's just—it's really just kind of wish fulfillment. It's just kind of fun to read. This is actually an interesting one because they show up with a very limited amount of supplies, a very limited amount of spare parts, a very limited amount of fuel, and they have to use those things really really carefully and really wisely. And they are completely and totally outnumbered and surrounded by a area uh, or uh, an era of history that they know very little about. And the book turned into a gigantic franchise. There's tons of uh, tons of spinoffs. I've really only read the first one. But that is kind of what, uh, what I'm thinking about when I think about choosing uh, particular tools to build into our production pipeline. Obviously, I don't think that we're going to wake up one day and find ourselves in the middle of the Thirty Years' War, or the 1600s, but there are significant economic strains upon the world right now. There are some significant supply chain issues. There are things that don't look like they're necessarily getting fixed tomorrow. And so again, while I really like cutting-edge stuff, and I really like top-of-the-line stuff, and I really enjoy the advantages of really pushing those envelopes, there are disadvantages to that as well. And I've experienced some of these in the past. I used to use Amiga computers very heavily for video work. That company went out of business. Uh, I used to use the Next Step operating system. That was the next thing that I went to after the Amiga, which was bought out by Apple and then killed in end of line. So I'm used to having tools that I am relying upon taken away from me because I don't actually have control over the entire tool's lifespan. And that has kind of subconsciously led me to value tools that are simpler uh, because they're easier to fix and easier to maintain. I haven't necessarily thought about those really consciously in, as they relate to manufacturing, but I am starting to. And Tormach's announcement that they were going to specifically make their tools easier to maintain and easier to repair and easier for the owner of the tool to really exercise complete ownership of just kind of started this thought process. And not only is Tormak doing something that is in my opinion, the right thing to do. Not only is it something that's going to serve their customers better by giving their customers more options and making the platform in general more valuable to customers, I actually think that this is an excellent move for Tormach in the market. I think that they have positioned themselves in such a way that people who do see issues with the supply chain in the future, issues with the economy in the future, that's going to make the Tormach option a little bit more interesting than, uh, I'm not going to even throw out a, a specific example, but a hypothetical CNC machine company that handles everything more like a subscription service the way that a san francisco big tech company would where you lease this cnc machine and guys come out and they give you cartridges filled with plywood and end mills and stuff like that and you you can't actually even see inside you only see the finished product as it gets spit out based on how many credits you've purchased with some sort of complicated social media tie-in And as we look at the current state of the world and trends within the world of software and of hardware, I think these are really important things to think about. I'm less interested in those really powerful tools that are entirely reliant upon proprietary tech. And there are a lot of ways in which we still are dependent on those. Not so much in, in the hardware arena, but with software. We, we switched away from LightWave to use Fusion 360. Autodesk has done a phenomenal job at making Fusion 360 kind of an industry standard, both for CAD and for really simple cam and for some 3D printing stuff. We're not totally reliant upon it because we're able to save all the 3D models that we have built inside of LightWave and save all of the 3D models that we have built inside of Fusion 360 in such a way that we can load those in other pieces of software. But we don't own Fusion 360 in any way, shape, or form. It would be incredibly easy for Autodesk to just take that tool away from us at any moment. Um, They've actually done it once or twice already, just purely by accident. And then we have to deal with their service department, which is... Uh, incredibly sluggish. So far, however, the positives have outweighed the negative. The strengths of using Fusion Three Hundred and Sixty have outweighed uh, the hypothetical downsides that we might run into in the future. But those those hypothetical downsides feel like they're getting closer all the time. As the media continues to talk about ghost guns, continues to talk about three D printed weapons. Very soon, I. I Guarantee this. Very soon, people are going to realize that Fusion 360 is the tool that is used by most DIY firearm folks. And there's going to be a considerable amount of pressure placed upon Autodesk to put in some sort of object recognition that figures out if you are building a firearm part, and then that is disallowed by whatever end user agreement Autodesk rolls out in the future. You'll be in violation of your Fusion 360 license if you are building stuff that you have gotten from the dark web, for example. These are things that I I guarantee people will call for in the future. I don't know that they will actually be implemented because as Autodesk has tried to make Fusion 360 the industry standard, they have wanted Fusion 360 to be picked up by the actual military industrial complex, not just uh, little shops like T-Rex Arms. And so putting that sort of restriction on weapons related parts is probably not uh the thing that they most want to put on their to-do list and at the the same time weapons specific parts are often very very hard to recognize some of the hardest parts of the firearm to build are literally tubes and springs and they look exactly like the tubes and springs that non-firearm equipment often requires So I'm not panicking. I'm not expecting the sky to fall in. I'm not expecting that cloud computing services are going to be completely taken away from us uh, like they were from Parler last year. But it is something that we should have on our radar. And as we launch ourselves into new uh, large equipment purchases or lock ourselves into new ecosystems of applications or hardware, these are things that I think that we should give some significant thought to. And it could be that an inferior piece of CAD software is actually more valuable to a company like T-Rex than the industry standard. And it could be that uh, what Tormach is doing is making them more valuable to certain types of manufacturers than some large, complicated, proprietary, cutting-edge company. I'm not trying to talk down uh, the quality of Tormach or the quality of ShopBot, but there is a value in the fact that they are made out of really simple, off-the-shelf parts even though speed or precision may suffer a bit. And there's some value in having a really expensive, precise machine that is built using entirely proprietary equipment, uh, but there's some downsides to that as well. You might have a machine that is capable of amazing things as long as it's well supplied by stuff that is, well, currently sitting on a container ship four to six weeks out uh, off the coast of California. So, I commend TorMock for thinking of ways of making their tools more robust and providing some more value to their customers so that they can depend on these tools for longer into the future, uh, even an uncertain future than some of the competition. And I would uh, really recommend that other companies that are involved in this think about this concept of rights to repair and more than just right to repair, um, right to fully own the tools and fully tweak and use those tools uh, even when certain uh, service options are no longer available. And for those manufacturing companies that are looking at expanding or looking at changing tool sets, I think this is a really, really important thing to think about. I believe that in the next uh, few years, resiliency is going to be a lot more valuable a concept in American manufacturing than raw efficiency. And while redundancy and robustness and uh, resiliency come at a cost, there are all kinds of circumstances, all kinds of scenarios, in which case it's totally worth it.